Welcome back to the podcast. This is D Train, and in this first segment, it's going to be given by an individual who is known by his his writing skills. He's also was an activist and also a screenwriter, and he's long been dead, but his words and his wisdom and his knowledge lives on. So I'm going to let you go ahead and listen to this clip, and then I'm going to chime in on the back end. What Negroes have had to know in this country, though, for all this time is that in order to survive, to become a man, one had to learn how to dance. Not like uh, Fred Astaire. The way somebody dances on a tightrope. The way somebody dances in the boxing ring. The way someone learns how to take a fall and how to get up when you've taken the fall. How, in fact, to become a man in spite of all those things which are determined to keep you from becoming a man. That's the Negro experience, put too briefly. And it's expressed every time you hear anything Ray Charles plays on that piano of his, or any time you look into that face. I want to suggest this, then, that as he uses it, as the Negro population has had to use it, so now the country must. There are some uses to which one can put the blues. Because, conversely, the white population has always assumed that there was some way to escape acquiring a face like Ray Charles or a tone like that or sorrow like that or triumph like that. There is still only one way to become a man or to become a woman. It is something that you do yourself. You take home a little kit and you put yourself together as many times as you're broken apart. If we think of the Negro problem as being essentially a question of masters, in this case the white population is a master, and victims, in which case the Negro is a victim, one makes a very great mistake because the white population can no longer act toward this problem, toward this one-tenth of a nation, as though they were all missionaries. Negroes cannot be saved by people who refuse to save themselves. What we are fighting for, if one still believes in it, is to achieve at last the American Revolution. The American Revolution, according to me, assumed that every man in this country had the right to become a man. I think your elders have betrayed you by teaching you that it was more important to become a success, more important to be safe, and have betrayed you in another way. Our entire history betrays us in this way. If one is going to get an education, if one is going to become what is called an educated man or woman, if I am the teacher, the only way I can help you get this education is to teach you how to think. Thinking is not a luxury. Thinking is not something that embroiders a life. Thinking is what a life, finally, in one way, depends on. But in order to learn how to think, one must be taught to think about everything. There can be nothing that one cannot think about. There can be nothing that one cannot examine. There can be nothing that one is afraid to overhaul or to change. It is what's called masculine sensibility. In this country, this is one of the things that it means to be an American. It is one of the great dangers of being an American. In this country, there's always been something not to think about. And what that was was me, sometimes called Sambo, sometimes called Uncle Tom, sometimes a rapist, sometimes a saint. These are your inventions, not mine. 
the effort the Republic has expended in not thinking about me has weakened its grasp of reality to a very sinister extent. It shows, I think, in every level of our lives, from the most private, so that people ask you in perfect good faith, until today, 1963, one year after the emancipation, would you let your sister marry one? They still think that's a question. And they mean it. And they don't realize out of what kind of spiritual and moral emptiness and panic such a question can come. It has never been a question of who married whom, besides which it's 400 years too late to talk about miscegenation. I'm, a, I'm produced by it. it. If one can be so confused on this level, it means that one doesn't know what to tell one's child. And after all, let me tell you this. In spite of all the books written about how to raise your child, and all the theories about it. Ultimately, you raise your child in one way only. You are his model. If you don't know what you mean, if you are lying, the child will know it. Children don't listen to what you say. They listen to what you don't say. They watch what you do, and they become what you, their model, uh, make them become. We've all been, I think, I know everyone in my generation has at one point or another been in the position of trying in the middle of his life, when it should have been done, to find a model on which, to, on which some standard to prove that you could be a man. Because in this country, we no longer believe in them. Now, to finish this off, and then you can have a chance at me. What I'm saying in effect is that this is not a white country. that clip, Mr. Baldwin had talked about several things. He talked about how to take a fall. He likened the Negro experience as to a boxer or even a dancer. And I don't know diddly squat about dancing. I'm one of those rare black dudes that don't know how to dance. Maybe that's not really that rare. I don't know. But I know for damn sure that I don't know how to dance. And um, so I'm not going to be talking about that. What I will talk about is something that I know a little bit about. Actually, I know a good deal about, and that's uh, and that's boxing. And you know, when you go, when you box or when you fight, uh, there's so many different things that you have to take into account. You're going to get hit. There's there's no if ands buts or anything about it. You're going to get hit. You're going to get hit hard. And there's going to be times where you don't expect it. Hell, there might be even times where you get dropped. But the thing is, is that when you go through this scenario, you have to think your way through. You have to think about the different scenarios. You have to think about how you're going to respond um, to pain or to conflict. Uh, meaning that, you know, you might be in a situation where you're on the ropes and you get pummeled or the guy is real strong or you might be real fast. So, you know, when you liken it to, to a boxer, uh, to me, it makes a lot of sense. Um, the Negro experience.
So you have to understand and pay attention and even learn your opponent's strengths and their weaknesses and understand how to counter them if you want to be able to defeat them. You might have to fight somebody who's really fast and you might not be fast yourself. So trying to outspeed somebody who's already an expert at being fast is a foolish thing. If you are the stronger one, then you want to use your strength and you want to use your presence and set up traps in order to nullify the speed that this individual has. Or if you're a really tall boxer and you're fighting somebody who's small, um, you definitely want to be on the outside. You don't want to go and take the fight in um, to a, a smaller individual. Hell, you might be really good at fighting on the inside, but why give the smaller man an opportunity uh, to beat you or to even get lucky by taking the fight to him and fighting on the inside. So I really appreciate the wisdom that Baldwin has has given us and has showed. And um, We need to understand that we need to know our enemy. We need to be able to, to think our way through critically and to respond accordingly. And so we can be able to to stay in the fight, to be able to have the best opportunity uh, possible in order to come out ahead. To touch on critical thinking just a little bit more, I'm going to read you the definition that I got off of Google. And um, critical thinking is the analysis of facts to form a judgment. The subject is complex and several different definitions exist, which generally include the rational, skeptical, unbiased analysis, or even of factual evidence. In a nutshell, critical thinking is relying on your, your own understanding, per se. Um, you know, you're asking questions, you're getting opinions from other people, you are reading books, you are watching videos, and just collecting all the different data that you can, and being open-minded, you have to be, you have to be open-minded, because you're searching for the truth, to whatever it is that you're, you're looking up, it could be subject on cooking, it could be a subject on, you know, how to train your dog, whatever the case may be, you need to use critical thinking and learn how to, to think for yourself. And yeah, you, you might need the opinions of other people, um, whether it's through text or whether it's, you know, a conversation face to face or, you know, even listening to a podcast. But the fact of the matter is that you shouldn't just take one source and then be like, hey, man, this is the gospel. I'm going to go ahead and run with this. Nah, you need to you need to think about it. You know, does this make any kind of sense? Is it is it plausible? Is there other things that I think should be in there that are missing? You know, how do other people feel about this? Um, what kind of experiences have I had in my life when it comes to, to cooking? Uh, have I had you know? Am I putting the right ingredients in this particular meal? So critical thinking is important because. Everybody and their mama has an opinion and, you know, 
folks who might very you know speak really well might be totally convincing of whatever topic they're talking about and you know that shouldn't just be the, the end all you should look for for substance for things that that make sense that you can put to practice and be able to to get the results that you're looking for next 11 to 12 minutes is going to be an account from some members of, of Indian tribes who have went through boarding schools and were on, on reservations and how they was mistreated, how they were tortured, how they were sexually abused, how they were taken away from their parents and they couldn't see their mom or their dad for years and how they were indoctrinated and forced to become more like the white man and how uh, they were trying to uh, kill the Indian but save the man and how Indians were looked upon as savages and that they were basically animals. And the funny thing about it is is that the same kind of stuff is happening today and it's not just the Indians that this kind of thing is happening to. You know, it happens to everybody. Maybe there's Fortunately, more so to, to blacks and those who are of color, but it happens to everybody. Uh, people are constantly mistreated. The cops are constantly pulling over folks uh, for no reason, killing them in their own homes, you know, beating them in the streets. Um, people are getting getting robbed or mistreated in their schools, and it has to stop. It needs to stop now. People need to, to wake up, open up their eyes, open up their ears, and pay attention to how the country that they say that they love, that they claim that they love, is being taken away from them. How it's being uh, transformed and manipulated into this disgusting thing where we are prey, we are cattle, and that we're being molested and raped and being used for money for the work industry um, and it is is sometimes I, I can't even find words for it but it has to stop we need to do something about it um, whatever it is that you can do you know educate yourself try to educate others open up your eyes quit falling asleep at the wheel because things are not getting any better and before you know it the things that you see on TV, um, with people getting pulled over, getting anally checked on the road to see if they have drugs on them, how loved ones are getting thrown in jail and cages for years on end for no reason. There's no proof of evidence, but then yet they find themselves locked in a cage. People's kids are being taken away from them for minor so-called infractions and their kids are being put through the system into homes and um, they don't these parents don't know where where the kids are and who these people are that are taking over uh, the lives of their kids and these so-called foster parents are physically abusing these kids and sexually molesting them and all kinds of sick things going on in this planet and um, we need to talk about it 
we need to stop being so damn sensitive when it comes to race. Uh, we need to we need to talk about it. I mean, that's just the bottom line. It is what it is. You know, if I see a duck, I'm going to call the damn duck a duck. I'm not going to call it a chicken. I'm not going to call it a rat. I'm not going to call it a cow. A duck is a damn duck. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. I have conversations with my wife all the time. She talks about how, you know, in the, in, in the system or, you know, people, when they, when they talk to their kids and they talk to them about, let's say they talk to them about, you know, their body parts and they give them these funny little names like a, a wee-wee or a hoo-ha. What the hell is a wee-wee and a hoo-ha? Like, boys have penises and girls have vaginas. Why are we giving them these funky names, man? Let's call it what it is. And like she always says that, um, you know, parents in the schools teach the kids that cows give us milk. No, no, cows don't give us milk. Uh, we steal the milk from the cows, just like we steal the eggs from the chickens. They don't give it to us. No damn chicken or cows ever come and knocked on my door and be like, yo, man, uh, you want some of this milk or you want these eggs? So, you know, we need to be honest with our kids. We need to be honest with our friends or with our loved ones and tell them what's really going on and talk about it intelligently. No, we're never going to be able to agree on everything. But like I was talking about earlier about critical thinking, you know, maybe we can expand our minds. Maybe we can see other people's points and come up with solutions to all these problems that we have here in America, whether it's in our home, whether it's in our jobs, whether it's in church. I mean, wherever we can find other people and we have to deal with them and the baggage that they carry, we need to talk about it. We need to talk about life. We need to be real with one another and stop acting like we're, we're living in paradise. Because I don't know about you, but I don't live in no paradise. I'm here on this earth and this earth is wicked and there's all kinds of crooked things going on. And it's like sitting back and watching a horror movie 24-7. I love horror, but I don't love it that much. I don't want to live it. You know what I mean? So I'm going to quit rambling. Go ahead and listen to these two clips. Um, like I said, about 11 minutes, 12 minutes tops from these, these folks who were given account about boarding school. We're giving account about um, living on a reservation and so on and so forth. And um, uh, love, peace, chicken grease, um, tranquility, all that good stuff. Give your loved ones hugs and kisses. Tell them how much you love them, how much they mean to you. And I'll see you in the next one. They wanted to destroy our identity. And they put us on these boarding schools. I'm one of them that they put in these boarding schools. You know, destroy, kill the, kill the Indian, save the man. Um, and over 100,000 children 
were taken from their homes and pulled and a lot in our family and I'm fighting, where am I going, where am I going? You know, my mom and my grandma are right there and I'm trying to hold, you know, trying to hold on to them and they come and take us apart. And, uh, but that, that, that scene was, multiply that by 100,000 children that were taken by force from, from their um, mothers and from their grandmas and grandparents. That, that destroy the language, mm -hmm. destroy the songs. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, you couldn't sing any native song. You couldn't speak any native language. The vernacular would be English and English only. That's how they wrote it up. In and, the boarding schools? Yeah. And, and there was corporal punishment there. But there was also, I mean, I was in a school where there was priests and nuns. And the first, that was the first one, and I, I heard the screams. And I was part of the screams. And the running away, and the beatings, and the whippings by belts and leather, and raping. I heard, I heard those screams. It just, and I, I hear it today. I, I, I said I would never forgive this government for allowing a policy like that to, to be inflicted upon us. And so historical trauma is still with us. And that's, but that's, when Standing Rock happened, the, all of this, this trauma and saying, hey, we, this, we're gonna go, we're gonna, we gotta go support them at all costs. kids in uniform and we'd be wondering how come they're like that we weren't dressed like that but these little kids were I remember being younger growing up on the reservation and being told don't trust white people don't listen to them You're never told why the government schools are constantly being built and hospitals added we bring them in clean them up and start them on their way to civilization I would ask social services and human services audience. How many people know about residential boarding schools? How many people here do? This never makes it into the history books. This is never talked about. Why did those schools get started and who started them and what was the rationale behind it? And the first general policy was the only good Indian was a dead Indian. That we needed to be killed, exterminated, eradicated. Um, once they realize that's a little bit more difficult to do is to have mass genocide of a population, the policies change to, from killing to killing the Indian and saving the man. There's a General Pratt who was well famous and documented for using those words to kill the Indian and save the man and that we are subhuman and that our ways are savage and we need to be civilized. Well, in the governments in Canada and the United States follow that policy up until the, the 1980s. 
in one form or another. There is a boarding school far, far away where we get mush and milk for three times a day. Oh, how the huskies run when they hear their dinner bell. Oh, how the huskies run three times a day. Like I say, I went to the mush hall when I was four years old. I was there for nine years. And uh, once in a while we'd come home on in summertime, but not all the time. When the counselors came and told my dad that he couldn't raise us properly, we were at the mush hole one week and our heads were full of bugs. Well, there was a lot of sad times, but I mean, like, I didn't get, like, angry and have any resentment until after I got out, because I didn't know, like, uh, from just from five and a half to 16, they would just thought it was just like a normal upbringing, like they not have no parents and stuff like that. Right. So that's what... Uh, and after I got out, and then they thought, well, this is the way they were supposed to be uh, treating us. I think my mother couldn't take care of us because uh, our father was uh, into alcohol. Me and my sister, we started there in 1945. I was five years old at the time. We had all our hair cut off. We were made baldies. We were really bald and uh, that wasn't a very good feeling to have. And uh, they used to call us uh, mushhole baldies. That's what they used to, the kids on a reserve used to call us. Well, we can go in now. I mean, this is gonna take like all day, eh? We were taken to the hospital to get checked out for uh, nits and whatever, I guess that was, and, you know. Uh, well, they checked us out, you know. Then, yeah. then, then they split us. The, the school was split in age group and by the boys and girls. Boys were on one side, the girls were on one side. And they went from the lower age up to uh, high school level. My mom. I'm gonna walk out here and go out this door, and uh, and at five and a half, I uh, my sister tells me that I grabbed my mom's leg, and uh, you know, of course we were all just crying. We were the whole four of us were just crying, like you know, because uh, my mom was gonna leave us here. So I I grabbed my mom's leg and uh, well, crying and that, and uh, just kind of like uh, hollering like, "Ma, don't leave me." don't leave me like you know so but anyway like uh, while that was going on like the supervisor came over and just kind of grabbed me and took me off my ma's leg and uh, and then my ma just walked out and I never seen her uh, for those 10 10 years that I was here she never come to see me once I don't know why he took my brother away to where he was supposed to stay and my sister she just went on her own I was with most of the four year four and five year olds we didn't go to school because we were too young yet through the agencies of the government they are being rapidly brought from their state of comparative savagery and barbarism to one of civilization when we used our language we at that young age too, you know, we were just learning. So uh, they used to wash our mouth out with soap. 
They would take the whole bunch of us and march us to the uh, shower, coal shower, and they'd throw us in there and beat us along the way. And that was a routine thing, I guess, I don't know. But that, that taught us, you know. They'd throw us in this dark press room where they kept all our Sunday go-to-meeting clothes, and uh, they'd throw Rosemary and I in there and uh, tell us the rats were gonna get us. But uh, I didn't know then why I was being thrown in there, and I used to wonder, what did I do? And uh, I would cry, and Rosemary would cry, and we cried and cried for hours in there, not knowing why we were in there. And uh, they'd take us out. And when I did get to learn a little bit of English, I knew then they were throwing us in there because we wouldn't speak English. And uh, I must have been stubborn right from the day I was born because I thought to myself, I'll never speak English either. You want me to speak English? I won't speak English. So I didn't speak at all for two whole years because I figured if I spoke Indian, I could lick him. And uh, if I spoke English, then it would be against everything that I stood for. And so I didn't speak at all. But today they all speak English and some have taken business courses, home economics, and other higher training. Took us into another room down there, and maybe down in the playroom. We took all our clothes off, and we put the, uh, the clothes of the school on. Yeah, and they give us a number. So my number was like 48, and my brother was uh, 36. My family was the state-run institute, and the nickname for the Thomas Indian School is Salem. And Salem was derived from asylum. And you know what an asylum is. It's for crazy people. So we were thought of as being crazy, I guess. They were just considered bad people, bad children, but they weren't bad children, okay? They were placed there for, for so many different reasons, but not because of any kind of delinquency um, on their part.